This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Now it's three minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on three triple R. I'm Anthony Boxhall. And I'm John Ford. And how are you, John? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Are you? Um, my body temperature is um, a little down. Is it? About did 22. You, did you know that the, uh, the bay is now um, warmer than the air temperature? It is too. Mm. It's probably significantly warmer than the air temperature. So the air temperature in my backyard this morning, for those who care about the my backyard air temperature, was 0.8 degrees. Nice. Well, I think uh, Port Phillip Bay is about 9 degrees at the moment. Maybe dropping, actually. Maybe it's dropped another degree recently. Goodness but, uh, me. It's a cold one at the moment. <laughs> sure is. Yeah, that'd be ice cream headache weather out there in the bay, wouldn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. But it's also... But outside at the moment. I love this. I've got to say, I love it. I'm just going to put it out there. I love this weather. Well, At least when it's not raining. Like, it's clear, it's crisp and sunny and clear and freezing. <laughs> and that said, when you do get under the water, that light, that crisp clearness of the water and the light is really beautiful. I'm sure I've mentioned that before, but it is really lovely if it you is. can suffer the ice cream headache. Absolutely. Now, we've got to thank Timothy. Timothy is a man who doesn't bring ice cream headaches. No, Timothy is a man who has... We have superlatives. Have We have literally... I have run out of superlatives to describe Timothy. Um, and so it's the lack of ice cream headaches that <laughs> I turned to today. What a beautiful show. Indeed, and I you still know. have that funky bass line from the Spectrum song. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 
We've got a bit of air base going <laughs> on out there. there. Tim's out there doing his air base. <laughs> He's got. Have you know? I think in winter, have you noticed that the beards get bushier? Oh, they do. They get bushier and they get more. <laughs> John Flouse liking like. I was going to say more Popeye like, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're on uh, Radio Marino. We do talk about things that are marine, and today we have a big show. Yes, we do. Indeed. A whole bunch of news lately. Yeah, yeah, a lot of bit going Interesting. on. A lot of bit going on. So I'm we're going to talk about, about something. A little local, a little bit national. Yeah, a little bit international, international actually. I've got an international. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've got two from the US. So that, you know, it's kind of international, I suppose, mm-hmm. even though it's the 51st state. Um, <laughs> then a couple of weeks back, uh, the Australian Marine Science Association had its national conference down in the beautiful downtown sunny and warm Geelong. It was sunny, but it weren't warm <laughs> in the middle of July. And a big turnout, actually. Yeah, it was great. A few hundred delegates along. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Australian marine scientists were down there. But they decided to do that and uh, a bit of an innovative thing and had lots of innovative things, but had a uh, public forum down there. We talked about this about a month or two ago. And so we did it. Now I pl- pretended to be Tony Jones, and um, we're going to bring you a little <laughs> snippets. Um, not the whole evening, because it went for about an hour and ten minutes, but little snippets of, of the evening a bit later in the show. And to some of Australia's top uh, marine scientists On talking the about yeah. the, current, the present and the future. Yes, and there were no members of the Coalition Front Bench, because they were boycotting anything that had the words Q&A in them. Right. So, okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> Not just. I, was, the, I don't think the there's room. any uh, marine scientists on the on the on the front bench, but anyway. I don't think there's any marine scientists in Parliament. No, in Why any Parliament in any or anywhere in well, that's Australia. Australia. No, I'm just okay. trying to think. Right. I don't. Well, I don't there know might be that. one in Iceland or something. It, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, of course, the famous Icelandic marine scientist community became politicians. Well, you know, they eat mm. a lot of fish there. Fish are important. <laughs> marine scientists are more important in, in Iceland, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, the, 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 there are, as far as I know, there are no marine scientists in federal politics. There are no marine scientists in Victorian politics. I, yes, I agree. I, There's very I, I few engineers as well. There's very few, really anything except lawyers <laughs> <laughs> and political hacks. But anyway, here we are, we're straying. Um, and, then it, and then we welcome in someone who, at the end of the show, well, not right at the end, you know, like very lots of time, mm-hmm. you know, before the end of the show, uh, for Soundwaves, Jeffrey Maynard. This is an, an Atlantis theme? He's, he's, he's on an Atlantis thing mm. at the moment. Lost sunken cities. I, yeah, I guess so. Mm. Maybe he's found one. He certainly wow. would have found some gems, wow. some sound wave gems. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Hey, weather, we talked about you know, my backyard early, but what's the real weather? Uh, the real weather, uh, Melbourne today, top of 13 degrees, a minimum of one, which would have hopefully already passed. But look, there's hardly any wind at all. There's hardly any wind. So if you do want to get out and get freezing cold, get out on the water. Um, tomorrow, though, is going to be 14, a little bit. And it's going to be sunny and morning frost, a low of three. But then... And so a low of three, so a veritably b- balmy. But um, the evening temperatures do really warm up during the middle of the week. So oh, uh, we've got a minimum of eight on Tuesday oh. and a minimum of 11 on Wednesday. So obviously we're getting some uh, cloud cover. Yes, and chance of rain is 80%. So, you know, we get the rain, but it does warm up overnight at least. So, yes, um, top of 15 every single day and rain for pretty much the entire week. Um, great. Sorry, top of what for every single day? 15 every single day and Sorry, rain every one. single day. That's right. And, <laughs> mm, good one. Okay. It's not looking like a nice week. No, but um, and the swell, the surf is good. There you go. Across most locations. 
water temperature out in the ocean is 13 degrees. So there's a big difference then oh, between yeah. the ocean and the bay. The bay's down really, to nine. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, big difference there. Phillip Island, excellent surf, 1.5 metres. Mornington Peninsula, 1.75 metres. There are some good, good, uh, good waves out there. <laughs> That's very precise, isn't it? Oh, 1.75 metres. To within 25 centimetres, clearly. Yeah, but we, it's still, it's very precise. Mm-hmm. You can imagine those surfers out there going, yeah, no, I'm sorry, that was a 1.8. It's a 1.73. Well, I mean, you're getting technical. Where do you even measure it from? Anyway, let's not get into oh, that no, right you can. now. We no, don't, no, we, no, you can't. No, we've had, we've had someone on the show. Talks oh, about that. Talk oh, about yeah, that. no, okay, we can right. tell you exactly where you measure it from. Uh, where, do, where, where do the guys in the newspaper measure it from? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, before we play a track, have you got a little quick snippet? Yeah, look, um, I've got a little quick snippet that I, I want to um, bring up um, about the Australian salmon farming industry, actually. There's an inquiry going on right now into the environmental effects of the Australian salmon farming industry, and I just want to give a bit of background to this. How, how big is it? How big is the fam- salmon farming industry? So Australian, the salmon farming industry is actually our largest seafood industry. So wow. we produce, so it's worth $497 million a year. Oh, that's big. It is big. It's almost double the next sort of seafood oh, wow. area. That's yeah, big. yeah. So it, it's huge. It's predominantly in Tassie? And all in Tasmania. All, all in, in Tasmania. Tasmania. <sighs> right. So, I mean, we're talking, this is a big industry and this is big money and this is, yeah, and in terms of, and also with sea, big, seafood. Big money for Tassie. Yeah, big money for Tassie where jobs are, are, yeah. are, are you know, are real, um, really scarce at the moment. And so it's actually the industry itself or the production is scheduled to double by 2030. So we're talking about the next 15 years, double that double that production. So wow. that's why the inquiry is going on to, okay, well, what are the actual environmental impacts of, these, of this industry? And looking into, well, can we support a, dub, a doubling of it? Because economically, it makes a lot of sense for, yeah, for, for, Tasmania, Tasmania, yeah. for Tassie to do, to do this. And it's actually the only air, one of the only areas of Australian seafood which is actually expanding. So all the rest of our sort of our fisheries and so on are declining. And that's mainly because of um, more strict management that's usually doing more, more uh, advice to sort of yeah, you know yeah. slow slow down, taking less as we learn more about these and and uh, learning that possibly less fish than what we thought. Um, so yeah, in, in this and so so is it all done on in the ocean or is it land and ocean? No, it's uh, it's pretty much all no, done all done in the in the right, ocean. Apart from sort of the the where they've closed the whole life cycle, so they get them yeah, to breed okay. and so on. A lot of those things are done um, on the land. That's called closing the life cycle. Is that's a technical cycle. term for you, those of you out there. It's Closing the life cycle. Well, that's what they, they have yet to do for the blue fish. Hey, you can imagine the guys when they did that, they came running, guys, guys, we've closed, we've closed the, the life cycle. cycle. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, so there was a lot of co- earlier, in, uh, a couple of years ago now, about doing that for bluefin tuna. So you'd actually Whoa. be able to close it. But oh, they yes, were. Bit, no, yeah, they had no, a few little ones survive, but um, in the yeah. end, they, they had to pull that pin because it, it just wasn't going to work. Um, that's but, yeah. because they, they, I mean, they're, they're a fish that needs to move. Oh, absolutely. They need to run. You think, I mean, they, they, they migrate free. thousands yeah. of thousands of kilometres. So to try to mimic that, that. <laughs> you can't close that life cycle. I'll close that life cycle. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> so anyway, I'm distracting away from the original point of this. There's an inquiry. That's right. Not about bluefin and tuna life cycle closure, but about the salmon industry. About the salmon industry. Double. So this is ongoing, and this will probably be going for, for a little while yet. But it's sort of something that I just want to flag, oh, wow. put your eyes, on. and just to make doing it? make people aware of, um, yeah. Like how, how big and important this industry is and how we need, to, if it is going to expand, which looks like it will, we need to do this um, responsibly. Uh, who's doing the inquiry? Uh, it's a government inquiry. Which so they're bringing like a fed, state, mix, local um, mixture of them all. Bit, a bit of a bit of everyone, yeah. <laughs> you just made that up. You just <laughs> made that up. He doesn't know, but we'll look into it. <laughs> 
No, so there's a, there's um, local sort of uh, other other fish farmers, aquaculture people, um, uh, conservation groups, and uh, and abalone divers are all concerned and sort of put um, put yeah right yeah are going to be appear, uh, appearing as uh, sort of government people. So anyway, well keep you informed. I just thought that was an interesting thing to put out there. Yeah, we've got lots of news. There's yeah. lots of news been happening. Yes, yeah, because it's been Shark Week. It has been Shark Week. It's been Shark Week. Do you mind if I... Maybe I'll kick off with a bit of Shark Week action first then, because as you've raised it, it has been Shark Week. Now, did you know it was Shark Week? Uh, I did, actually. You did? I've heard a lot on social media, so... Yeah. Did we mention it last weekend? I'm not quite sure. I don't think we did, actually. Anyway, um, it's Shark Week. Now, it's a... Do you know where it started? Where did it start? No, I'll guess, but no, no. Just give it to me. Discovery Channel. Oh, really? Yeah, seriously. Okay. 28 years ago. <laughs> Discovery Channel um, basically is an annual tribute to, to, shark, to sharks mm. um, and started this thing, you know, mm. Shark Week. And it's been going on for a while and there's a really interesting article in The Conversation this week having a look at um, public service announcements about sharks and what they do if they're if they do actually change people's perception. Um, it's by a couple of, um, of uh, university uh, researchers, one in University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and one in University of Indiana at Bloomington. Um, so Jessica um, Melrick and Susanna Evans. Uh, have a look if, you can, if you're really interested. But anyway, um, wh- what they wanted to do was understand what Shark Week actually does. Does it affect people's beliefs and feelings about sharks? Bit of, I guess a bit of social science into kind of the effectiveness of Shark Week. And, you know, so they put a bit of facts into this and Marinara listeners know this stuff at the start. You know, there's 100, up to 100 million sharks killed every year and, you know, um, seven people kind of thing. You know, so, they, you know, they laid that out and there's five different types of... Actually, five. Fewer than five every year, they say. Um, we get about a fifth of that yeah. in the country. Um, we get about one a year in Australia mm-hmm. on a normal year. Anyway, uh, and then they draw on um, uh, a whole... Basically, they're saying that Discovery Channel is tapping into something here and people do like, like it. They do watch. But what it does is it seems to... with well, a lot of what they play, what is available is a lot of violent imagery about sharks. Mm-hmm. Sharks as apex scary predator, fearful stuff, and they can't make um, top of the food chain. And so then they've got these public service announcements from a whole lot of um, marine conservation organisations stating facts about sharks that are designed to mitigate people's emotional reactions to the imagery of Shark Week, because Shark Week does play all the kind of Jawsy stuff, you know. Dun, dun. Yeah. So they compared clips from Shark Week that contained high levels of violence with these conservation-focused public service announcements to see whether, um, you know, what, how people reacted. They played them simultaneously. Well, no, no, they just, no. you know, they to focus groups and okay, however yeah, they do yeah, this, yeah. you know. Um, and so um, one of them was... Uh, uh, so um, they used actual shark conservation public service announcements. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, one of them was um, called Scared for Sharks, um, which, which ran earlier in the year. Anyway, so both public service announcements informed viewers the actual risk of being killed was really quite low and that sharks have been killed in high numbers. Yeah. So... It turns out that about um, more than 500 people watched the clips and reported their reactions. And it turns out that violent Shark Week content, whether it's paired with these public service announcements or not, which the conservation groups put on to counter the violent Shark Week you know, content... <laughs> basically caused fearful reactions in people. Mm-hmm. So it helped reinforce the yeah. fearful reaction. 
<laughs> so no matter what, so they, they, they make a comment, which I think is one of their best comments in the article. No matter what, sharks are scary, especially in high definition. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really interesting. These public service announcements that are designed to mitigate people's fearful reactions, mm. put on, you know, funded by things like the Pew Ocean Trust and Oceana and, and you know, a bunch of people, you know, non-profit groups that are designing these public service announcements to counteract the violent imagery seen mm. on the Discovery Channel on Shark Week do not mitigate people's fearful, people's fearful <laughs> reactions. People still continue, according to this study, to overestimate their own risk of being attacked by sharks. And they call it the mean ocean syndrome. The mean ocean. Yeah, it's a mean ocean out there. Which is a variant of the marine world syndrome. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, the mean world syndrome. <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, that, that's interesting because they probably use a lot of statistics in trying to mitigate this. And sort of, it's actually, it's very, very low, very, very few people. Now, the thing about statistics and any kind of numbers is that, you know, as I say, statistics can prove anything, right? Depending on the mindset of, of, of the person. So if you've got, you know, if there's one in, in 10 million chance, that's still a chance. And there's a lot of people in this planet. Oh, yeah. There's billions of people. And I've got a one in 10 million chance. That means, you know, and suddenly, <laughs> oh, bam, totally. you can yeah, take yeah. that, go, you can let that go. Yeah. So in those cases, statistics themselves, or at least numbers, even though uh, scientifically, or, you know, they, they, may, they may seem quite small, um, can easily be blown up in, in, in the, in oh, the yeah. mind. So, oh, yeah. yeah, statistics aren't always Well, always the, the actual study themselves, because it was a social science study it was mainly narrative so mm. so it was mainly qualitative mm. and what they were finding that people were grouping their responses into certain into mm. certain responses what what they what they wanted to know though then that they did find an interesting little sub thing and that was okay despite the aim the objective of those public service announcements which was to counteract the violent imagery of sharks they then found that um that particularly for younger women, interestingly, because they group, you know, grouped everyone to demographics, um, the public service announcement did actually prompt an increased interest in shark conservation mm. and in some kind of intent to do something towards that. Mm. So despite it not changing the fearful perception, it did increase people who came off a low base, you know, when you the study came off low base, did increase their interest in thinking, oh, and kind of started to reframe their thinking about shark conservation. Mm-hmm. So maybe they did achieve some of what they set out to do, but they certainly didn't mitigate the fear <laughs> that people felt. Well, I mean, th- that's good to know that Just there can still be a drive to conserve or protect something um, that we fear. Exactly. Mm. Which brings me to my second Shark Week-related thing. And I don't know whether this happened because it was Shark Week, but I don't know whether you saw earlier in the week some footage from, I'm going to say Florida. Oh, the shark on the beach. Yes, that was the white shark. Beached, basically. Yeah. Yep. A, uh, yep, great white mm-hmm. that had beached on a sandbar in southern, I think it was Florida, actually. Mm, somewhere in the southern US. Yeah, excuse me. And they... Um, it had, it had basically chased a bunch of birds up onto the birds. <laughs> so, like, I'm sorry, but like from a shark perspective, this is an evolutionary dead end here. Okay. So, but what was what actually happened was really interesting. The footage that was on the that was doing the rounds, you know, social media and mainstream media, showed the people who were in that area rescued it. Now. I know it wasn't the town called Amity. <laughs> For those who haven't seen it, that's where Jaws was set. Um, but I still found that very interesting, that people's response, because it was a great white, a two-and-a-half-metre-long great white with the teeth that great white have. Mm-hmm. Now, they all kept their respectful distance, but they did rescue it. And in the end, they tied a, um, a little boat, a motorboat to, tied, you know, rope around the tail, mm-hmm. anchor rope around the tail and towed it back out. I reckon two decades ago or less that wouldn't have happened. 
No, not at all. I reckon people would not have put a great white back in the water. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little incremental, especially not at a seaside beach resort where you're, you know, <laughs> oh, let's go swimming. No, we just put the great white back in. You know? <laughs> so I reckon there is a small change happening. Certainly, certainly. And there you go, Shark Week may be working. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, enough about sharks. <laughs> uh, great. Look, I've got, um, I've got a bit more of a local story now. Mm-hmm. Um, very. If anyone is down in the Bellarine Peninsula in the Geelong Advertiser on Friday, I think Thursday, Thursday or Friday, yeah. there was um, an... Uh, head, it was the headline, front page. Front page. This is after the footy club headlines. Yeah, well, no, yeah. $80 million marine farm proposed for the Ballerine Peninsula. Wow. That's wow. That's, big investment that's in Geelong. Big news. Wow, really what's happening. Right? And being mm-hmm. a marine scientist, I'd never, you know, and being involved in that, so that's something I'd never heard of. So mm-hmm. um, it sort of it took my attention straight away. Um, but I want to begin by putting this in a little bit of context. So um, there's been a concept which is quite well accepted and established in the US called concept of living shorelines mm-hmm. and this really came about by trying to protect shorelines from erosion so erosion is a problem that we have in many of our coastal areas and a lot of the solutions have been engineering so just put up a seawall you know, yeah, pretty yeah. much just put up a seawall yeah. like that but this is sort of taking it beyond there and actually trying to create a living environment which protects the coast from erosion, but at the same time also provides natural habitats and, and productivity and, and so on and all the so services you, associated with that. So you mean like, oh, I'm going to go out on a limb here, mangroves and salt marshes like they used to do. Yeah, but but then also <laughs> moving into the water. So yeah, you right. might, so something in the US that they may have done is you may put a, a kind of a fringing um, reef or yeah, oyster, right, oyster reef, such, right. so you may, oh, put, okay, so you you may actually put physical structures yeah. in there. So yeah, you may yeah. put physical yeah. structures, say, for oysters or mussels yep. to grow on. Behind that, you might have... The, because you've stopped sort of the wave action behind that, you might have seagrass. You may actually yeah. p- plant the seagrass in there or it may establish naturally. Moving back onto the shoreline, you might re-establish mangroves. So you've got this sort of natural living shoreline which actually protects and we don't need these big seawalls. Anyway, so that's, that's you know, and it's it's something that I think we're just getting our heads around yeah. in Australia that we that might be a good thing. It's so... It, it, there's, a, there's a couple of really interesting articles I've seen recently about the urbanisation of the of the marine environment and particularly starting with the coastal fringe and it's a little bit consistent with that whole you know the way stormwater drains used to be just big flat concrete things and mm. now they're they're water gardens you know they're stormwater harvesting gardens and you know they it's exactly con- you know conceptually similar okay great yeah but um, the so thing is, is the 80 million dollars it's going to well, be a beautiful well, fringing well that would be that would be nice it looks certainly um, the in terms of content look uh, uh, this 80 million dollar um, marine farm it's it's only a proposal so it's a proposal by um, a company called Heiju who are um, a very large um, artificial reef structure company that have done artificial reefs um, all around the world, including here the $1.5 million piece of um, <clears throat> artificial reef that went in off Torquay. Um, they were the ones who were contracted to put that right. one, put that one okay. in to improve recreational fishing opportunities. So these guys have um, basically put out a, a proposal just saying, hey, this is what we want to do. This oh. is our vision. <laughs> this is our vision for, right. the, for the Bellarine. And... Um, about sort of putting in, I think, how was it? So, 9,000. So no, so it hasn't been. They, oh. they, I think they've sent the proposal to the government and so on, but and there's no nothing official. There's nothing right. nothing official whatsoever. Excuse it's just a pun, but they're fishing. Uh, they're so fishing it, here. basically, right, a company's yeah, come along okay. and said, hey, this is our idea. And yeah, obviously, wow. someone uh, found it quite interesting down there. And I find it very interesting too. Hmm. I find it really interesting in how that we can take these traditional engineering ideas, and really, these guys are an engineering company, yeah. right? And so, how we can, we can take these engineering ideas and these companies who do what they do very well, however, 
is that really the outcome we want? What the outcome that I see is something with a lot more bio, biology, a lot more e- ecology involved. So we have something living around these structures. So we might yeah. not need as much structure, yeah, yeah. but we need something living around there. So if we can turn these kind of ideas into something which promotes more of a living shoreline, so promoting oyster yeah. mussel reefs, the seagrass restoration, the you know the salt marsh, and all this, this the, the engineering is a part potentially of this solution. And yeah. I'm I'm not against artificial reefs or per se. So I kind of I would support that in these circumstances. So hopefully yeah, wow. we can move from this into a pure engine from a, something which is purely engineering yeah, yeah. into that, that, so something. So John's getting fired up because that was him banging his... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I just, yeah. No, you're not. So, so just when you, you, you we took us to the kind of, you know, artificial oyster reefs, thing, it's a little bit like the um, Nature Conservancy work that's been happening in the Bay, which I think we've talked about on here. Yes, we have. Yeah, a few times. We had Paul Hamer um, yeah. from Fisheries Victoria come in and talk about the um, oyster reef um, project, which is going on, which, I, which I'm involved with, which is more subtitly. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, that would be... So if you had a coastline that was, you know, and, and as we will have changing um, ocean dynamics, you know, with ocean with sea level rise and there's climate change which you know is back again good um you know but you know can be talked about is um at least at least with that you can you'll have changing dynamics and if you know you're going to lose coastlines particular coastlines that's where you can put these things further offshore you can buffet them you can you know bring them blow it yes okay i see where you're going Mm, anyway that's not what this was uh, no, not entirely. Look, they do they do talk about that a little um, yeah, yeah. in terms of in the proposal, but um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how how that goes. And um, yeah, certainly mm-hmm. I think it's important to you know creating a, creating a living shoreline is a little more difficult than just creating a structure. So yeah, but hopefully we can we can move there in the yeah. future. Yeah, stick a couple of you know stick a couple of groins in and a seawall and off you go. <laughs> um, the um, we do love engineers; they're very important. Some of my best friends are engineers. I just like to. <laughs> good. <laughs> do, they, do they put You're on right. good parties? Yeah. I don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, on a cold Monday evening in Geelong almost two weeks ago, I moderated an innovative public science forum as a part of the Australian Marine Sciences National Conference. So in a, in the Deakin Theatre down there in the... Um, Costa Theatre in Deakin University, about 150 people joined us to discuss a theme of estuaries and oceans. What are the threats? Uh, and and estuaries, two oceans, what are the issues? I beg your pardon, estuaries, two oceans, what are the issues? Um, and we had a great panel. There was a, a, a panel of, uh, of who's who of excellence across disciplines in Australian <laughs> marine science. And I'll just run down who they were very quickly and where they came from. Uh, Dr Tim O'Hara, who's uh, internationally recognised for his work, he's a lead scientist with the Museum of Victoria. Um, you know, pretty much biodiversity. Lots about biodiversity. Who just published a, an article in The Conversation about um, uh-huh. shifts in um, sort of some of the marine species in climate change. Anyway. <laughs> Dr Emma Jackson, who's from the UK originally. She's um, up at the Central Queensland University School for Medical and Applied Sciences. Um, and she focuses on um, restoration of marine ecosystems, particularly seagrass, seagrass restoration. Dr Beth Fullerton, who is a principal research scientist with CSIRO Atmosphere and Ocean, flag- ocean Atmosphere Flagship. Um, she's a modeller. She's an awesome modeler. Her fisheries and ecosystems model, she takes numbers and just turns them into something that tells us stuff that we could never have understood any other way. Amazing stuff. Um, 
And um, on the panel as well was um, Dr. Peter Nichols, who is a multi-award winning biochemist. He's a principal research scientist in food and nutrition at CSIRO and Oceans and Atmosphere. And he's, he's a guy who helped kind of really kick off and the understanding of omega-3 fish oils. Um, and um, and he's, he's a very interesting um, background. And then Professor Emma Johnston from uh, University of New South Wales. She's the director of the Sydney Harbour Research Program at Sydney Institute of Marine Sciences. And she actually, last year, was awarded the inaugural Nancy Millis Medal from the Australian Academy of Sciences, which is pretty prestigious. Mm. Anyway, she knows she kind of works on impacts from um, uh, marine environments, and so we had this prestigious panel, you know, this brilliant panel, and they were all ready to go, and we were, we were, it was, it was amazing, you know, kind of. So we had this audience, and we started with um, with Tim O'Hara actually and an audience member had asked this particular question from your area of expertise what is the greatest threat to estuaries and oceans today and the audience member wanted to ask each of the panel members so we'll start with Tim O'Hara. Okay where do you start I mean the obvious one is global warming and the reason I say that and I hope I'm not stealing everyone else's thunder because I'm sure everyone will probably think this is the same way but um, it because a threat is is affects most biodiversity when it's widespread. You know, the, big, the more widespread the, the threat is, if it, if it affects more and more populations of a species, the more chance it's going to drive that species to extinction. So something like global warming is truly global. And so it's going to affect the most ecosystems. It's going to affect some species completely over their entire range. So, and that's uh, obviously a prime concern. But perhaps some things you haven't thought about um, would be that, for example, if the ice caps melt much more and we stop getting that sinking of deep salty or cold salty water from Antarctica that flows right down into the deep sea, um, then oxygen flow to the deep sea will also cease. So two-thirds of the planet will go anoxic. It has happened in the past. Um, but that's really a terrifying prospect. Two-thirds of the planet might be uh, completely without life if that sort of thing occurs. So um, clearly you can't go past global warming. Thanks, Tim. Emma, from your perspective, what is the biggest issue facing estuaries and oceans? <laughs> and it can't be global warming. I'll expand it out then, too. Um, I think it's basically those pressures like global warming um, and other climate change issues and ocean acidification. Things that can't be managed um, is my... I see as being the biggest issue. So it can't be managed within a political framework, um, of political timescale, sorry, and things that can't be um, corrected as easily. So permanent habitat loss, and that's happening across all our sort of estuaries and coasts, um, and that's something that's very difficult to come back from. So what I'm talking about is where you actually go out and you convert habitats from the sea into land areas um, and then build on them or, or create sort of structures that basically just can't be removed and easily corrected. So it's those sort of like long-term permanent things, but also those things like climate change where to manage them, managing our carbon emissions can't be done within a political timescale, so it's very difficult to like keep these things going and, and also go into the actual understanding of them within that, that time frame. Beth, from your perspective? So from my perspective, it's humans. <laughs> so everything that we do affects the ocean. So if we think about the kind of change that's happening in the ocean, 
And that was not the oh yo 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 yo. Something wrong with that track, I suggest. We're gonna we're gonna pick it up a little further on um, as we're we're talking about the the various impacts that that the, the panel members believed believe were the biggest threats. So we are we're massively changing our coastal oceans and expanding out into the deep ocean. So we're taking everything we've done in the land and into the sea. So. Global climate change and acidification is just a couple of small symptoms of the, the bigger creeping effects that we're having. And Peter, from your perspective? It's um, dinner time for most of us here, including yourselves out there, so I'm going to say sustainable seafood. So both wild seafood but also farm seafood. So at the moment we are now um, harvesting as much farm seafood as wild seafood. The global population is increasing and yet we've got resource pressures in terms of what are we going to feed our farm seafood. So that's um, a, an area that needs innovation going forward from um, not only marine scientists but um, you know, we'll, we'll have to marry with other scientists so that's, that's my issue. Emma Johnston, last word goes to you on the biggest issue from your perspective facing estuaries or oceans. Do I always get to go last? Because no, I don't. love that. <laughs> There's a plan. So the only thing I could really say at the end of this panel of experts is really it's death by a thousand cuts. So population growth, economic growth and climate change would be the major drivers of most of the change in our coastal waterways and our oceans at the moment. And we struggle to understand, comprehend, value and trade off our impacts from those three aspects especially economic growth, is predicated on a relatively unfettered use of ocean and estuarine ecosystem services. And that's based basically because we refuse to value them appropriately. And if we continue to not value them in these systems, then there's a whole range of unmitigated trade-offs that are really just kind of going unseen and we're eating into that future. And so I think I'm sitting right on the fence and saying it's all three of those things. We've, we've started, I suspect, with a somewhat bleak picture of the world. <laughs> um, and, and, and I do hope that during the next 45 minutes we start to tease out what the possibilities are for reversing and or undoing or in some way arresting some of those um, issues that we just discussed. And in fact we did. We, we wandered all over the place, John. We had a fantastic conversation that picked up on so many issues uh, that, that people raised. There were, pe there were issues that people had raised by Twitter feed uh, oh, so it was a bit like Q and Q and A. They had the questions like, come in. A lot hey, like Q &A. Wow. Yeah, we had we had the Twitter feed going. We had live audience members, um, you know, popping in their own questions. Um, we, we and so let's go. We'll pick it up a bit later yep. in the evening with a completely different um, um, t set of questions uh, that had come in from the audience, and then we'll we'll, we'll wrap up there. Take up another topic, Peter. This is an anonymous um, texter who's asked you: Should we be getting our fish oils, our omega threes, from seaweeds and not fish? Well, we can get them from seaweed. An issue there is that seaweed and sea grasses as well are very low in oil. So that's in, in terms of meeting the nutritional requirements. So the medicos, nutritionists, generally say have 500 milligrams of the long chain omega-3 a day, you won't get that from, you'd have to eat massive amounts of seaweed or seagrass. Actually, and seagrass sea does not have the long chain omega-3. 
And can those, it sounds like if you did have to have massive amounts, it would mean enormous amounts of area actually farmed or harvest, to harvesting to get the biomass to even get close to the levels. That's right. So in terms of, well, again, seagrasses, you can't, but um, seaweed, you can, you know, you can culture seaweeds. But again, you can get to have two capsules of fish oil a day. Is there anybody out there having two capsules of fish oil a day? Put your hands up. <laughs> no, not too, not, you work, you're working against evolution. Um, so two, two capsules a day will, will meet those targets, but you'd have to eat massive amounts of seaweed. And just while we're just continuing and building that um, the, on the nutrition there, if they can only therefore come from fish, do they come from other marine animals, not plants? Or, or well, all right. It, it, fish don't actually make the beneficial omega-3s. They're made at the bottom of the food chain by the microalgae. So there are a couple of um, US companies making microalgal oils, but they're very expensive compared to the fish oils, but it'll satisfy the, um, the vegans. Um, we do, the, the main project that I'm involved with at CSRO, it's all about taking the genes from the microalgae and transferring them into a, a, a new Australian crop in canola. So we see in the future there will be an opportunity to actually grow canola which Australia is very good at, and produce the beneficial long-chain omega-3 oils. So we're, we're pretty excited about the project. Um, yeah, we, ha we have a, an Australian multinational commercial partner. Um, I think we're allowed to mention company names. So New Seed, which is a subsidiary of New Farm. So um, maybe two to three years away from, from um, as a commercial crop. So there will be a way forward. Thanks, Peter. While we um, get another hand up for a question of the audience, there's a question that's come in on the Twitter feed. So if someone has got a question, pop your hand up and we'll get a mic to you. But while we do that, Beth, a question's come in on the Twitter feed from Peter McCready asking, are human impacts on the oceans equivalent to the agricultural revolution? Um, they certainly having that potential. So in places like China, the Great Sea Wall of China is now longer than the Great Wall of China. The, um, and you can go, you can't find the coastline in many parts of China because it's just, it sort of transitions from water through a floating cities of aquaculture farms that stretch for hundreds of metres, if not kilometres, offshore. So that's sort of a foretaster of what's happening in other parts of the world. But the world. And it was amazing. We keep going, after a cut. we're going to have to stop there because there's just so much. It goes on and brilliant stuff. And that's that interesting thing that Beth's finished just there with, John, that you were just discussing, which was about how the foreshore gets completely changed. In this case, it's changed by development of an industry. Um, and, in fact, she, she would argue kind of uncontrolled, mm. um, which is, I, I, I think, that, that was the point that um, was being made there. But very interesting evening. Lots of topics every, you know, jumped around all over the place from kind of, you know, uh, risks to, 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 to solutions to, to... And we finished actually, and I, um, I, you know, we've run out of time, we can't play the rest of it. We finished on a really interesting series of really exciting marine science and technical innovations that people think will change the world. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, well worth uh, it. It's a very lucky Geelong locals got yeah. to get along to that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I reckon AMSA is considering doing that again. I reckon they should. Because we welcome Jeff Maynard for a sound... We haven't figured waves. it out. No, we're still, we're still thinking about it. You sure? It. Yeah. We'll we call, can... we call it sound waves today. Sound... I just said it's Shark Week. We could call it sound bites, but... <laughs> 
it really let's kind of move on uh, look I've been looking at Atlantis and, and Legends of Atlantis and um, uh, there was a very good book brought out about two months ago called Meet Me in Atlantis where someone went around and studied all the various versions of Atlantis and yeah. and, and went all over the place interviewing everybody that that had a theory as to where it was. What we do know about Atlantis was the uh, Greek philosopher Plato, who uh, wrote a lot of work through dialogues, had people discussing things like um, government and what life was all about. And one of his characters tells another character about this city called, uh, or it didn't actually have a name, but a city that sunk, that got too powerful and sunk beneath the water. And it was beyond the Pillars of Hercules, and everyone assumed it was in the Atlantic Ocean. So it's uh, uh, they called it Atlantis, and people have been looking for it ever since. Um, it pretty much the best the best evidence we have is it never existed. It was right. purely okay. a dialogue from Plato as a as sort of a, an analogy or an example of, of what goes wrong in civilization. So, so, so I can just see this. Plato was sitting down one day, he was thinking, I've got, I'm going I'm to get some kind of story here so I can draw out the analogy and he makes this thing up over a couple of glasses of vino. Exactly And that. now there yes. are people, there's an industry hunting the place. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, and and there is there is literally yeah. is an industry. They're, they're looking for it everywhere in the Sahara Desert. They've been, oh. you know, and, and so this is kind of what two and a half thousand years later. Yeah, uh, yeah good two thousand four hundred <laughs> yeah. years later. Yeah, is, I mean, I want, it's an industry. You know, I, I, it really what is. I want to do is I want to have a party one day <laughs> where I say something like that, and two and a half thousand years later, <laughs> everyone's, everyone's still looking I'll for it. I'll blog it, and I'll go, yeah. I'll go, oh. Anyway, we'll, we'll jump a little bit. Yeah, Let's yeah. play the first track, and we're going to a nineteen nineties TV show called. Hercules. Here we go. A time of myth and legend when the ancient gods were petty and cruel and they plagued mankind with suffering. Only one man dared to challenge their power. Hercules. <laughs> Hercules possessed a strength the world had never seen. A strength surpassed only by the power of his heart. He journeyed the earth battling the minions of his wicked stepmother Hera the all-powerful queen of the gods. But wherever there was evil, wherever an innocent would suffer, there would be Hercules. So a great, oh, a great TV show. Uh, it had a big muscly guy called um, Kevin, Kevin Sorbo. Sorbo. That's yes, it. I know, made I made know, New Zealand, and he ran around in this little toga thing and <laughs> leapt out of trees. And, and that anyway, was about the same time that Xena came out as well. So there was a whole lot of New Zealanders running lot, semi-naked. A lot of leftover costumes. <laughs> anyway, in this episode of Hercules, he gets washed up on the shore of Atlantis, and as in every episode, the first thing he does is meet a beautiful woman, and then he goes and she takes him to the marketplace of Atlantis. Now this Atlantis is pretty good because it's all scientific they don't believe in gods which oh. is a problem for hercules because he's half god <laughs> but anyway he, he goes to the marketplace and the first thing in the marketplace is he meets a guy that tries to sell him a microwave oven <laughs> and, and it's powered by crystal so let's have a listen to this crystal god. microwave oven Citizen, this is your lucky day or should i say your little woman's lucky day thanks to the miracle of modern christology and my special price to you and a steal of a deal it is you can have your very own crystal Crystal wave oven. Just pop in your food, press a button, and zap! Instant feast. A demonstration. I'm sorry. What happened? I got caught up in a circus. She with you? Uh, yeah, is there a problem? What are you trying to do? Ruin my business? Oh. Anyway, he doesn't buy the microwave, but the bad, bad ruler... <laughs> the crystal waves? The crystal waves. Yeah, crystal Sorry, wave. my apologies. Crystal wave. They've got crystal wave guns, and they've got crystal wave aeroplanes that fly around the hills of New Zealand with Hercules learns to fly one. Um, 
anyway, the the the, the thing about this episode is science is king or science is is rule and gods don't exist. So we'll have a little speech from the ruler of Atlantis that talks about science. Oh, yeah, okay. A stranger has entered our great kingdom. He wears the mask of deceit. Now rumor spreads like wildfire. Gods do not exist. Tricksters do. The only threat to Atlantis is fear. We must unite against it. Anyone who chooses may leave the city. But know this, out there, beyond the cliffs, that is wilderness. I, I, I'm Jeff. I'm worried about the, the, his people. They look. They sounded either very sparse or very bored. You know. Uh, <laughs> in response, they, it was a trick yeah, show. Yay, they didn't have a lot of extras. Yeah. Yay. They, they just. They had the sort of the courtyard with the guy standing up on his platform, and they only had about like twenty <laughs> out of work New Zealanders standing yeah. there in togas, going yeah, yeah, you know. Probably the gaffer it. and the key grip and the yeah. So, so Jeff, I'm a little confused. They're isn't all standing there saying, "We're going to get back to the milk bar, mate. How long is this going to take?" Isn't isn't Atlantis a sunken city? Shouldn't it be underwater? How are they flying planes? That's the problem with Atlantis. It, it's yeah, it's yeah, if it's, it's underwater. It's yeah, the most movies of Atlantis, you don't see any water. You know, they right. get down there. And it's like it's in a dome and it's a perfectly dry inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's that's one of the problems. Oh, they're in domes now. Oh, right, well, okay. so, some Atlantis cities are in domes. Right, okay. Other others are sort of just. So then, what domes. happens? There's, there's a movie that I'm coming in next week where yeah. Atlantis is in the desert. You know. Oh, oh, oh okay. Uh, so well, what happens? Okay, okay. Last week, Hercules is going to prove that gods do exist and beats up all the bad guys and says, yeah, scientists. It's all crap. Gods exist. <laughs> so, which is his job. With muscles, go. Yes. Are you one of Cassandra's gods? Uh, the son of a god if it matters. It doesn't. People who need you may believe in you. This is Atlantis. We don't. And you. Harboring an outsider. A god, no less. Oh, leave her out of this pantheus. She's done nothing but try to help you. Wrong! In Atlantis, order and progress are supreme. <laughs> you might say they're our religion. Well, maybe it's time to think about converting. It's <laughs> just gorgeous. So, yeah, look, it's, uh, uh, for, forget it. about science, forget about all that other stuff. Let, let, let's just, uh, yeah, Hercules will sort it out Are for you us. one of Cassandra's gods? Yes. So you, uh, so you can pretty uh, much use Atlantis to carry any plot line you want, really. You can. That's by the sounds yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's that's the big thing about Atlantis. Like sharks, like all the other things you discuss, it's, um, you, you, you can interpret it any way you want, the way you go. <laughs> so thank you to Plato. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.